1 Samuel 23, I'm going to begin reading in verse 7. And it was told Saul that David was come to Kailah. Saul said, God hath delivered him into my hand, for he is shut in by entering into a town that has gates and bars. Saul called people together to war, to go down to Kailah and besiege David and his men. And David knew that Saul secretly practiced mischief against him. And he said to Abiathar, the priest, Bring hither the ephod. Then said David, O Lord God of Israel, your servant has certainly heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city for my sake. Will the men of Keilah deliver me up into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord God of Israel, I beseech you, tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. David Then said David, will the men of Keilah deliver me and my men to the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, they will deliver you up. Then David and his men, which were about 600, arose and departed out of Keilah and went wherever they could go. And it was told Saul that David was escaped from Keilah and he forbear to go forth. David abode in the wilderness and its strongholds and remained in the mountain in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day and God delivered him not into his hand. And David saw that Saul was come out to seek his life. And David was in the wilderness of Ziph in a wood. Now turn over to chapter 27. We'll begin reading in verse 1. David said in his heart, I will now perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should speedily escape into the land of the Philistines. And I will despair and Saul will despair of me and to seek me any more in, in the coasts of Israel, and I will escape out of his hand. So David arose, and he passed over with his 600 men that were with him to Achish, son of Maok, the king of Gath. Gath. Keep that in the back of your mind. We've heard that word before. And David dwelt with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man in his household, even David with his two wives, Ahinoam, the Jezreelite, and Abigail, the Carmelite, Nabal's wife. And it was told Saul that David was fled to Gath, and he sought him no more again. And David said to Achish, If I have now found grace in your sight, in your eyes, let, let me, give me a place in some town in the country so that I could dwell there. Why should thy, your servant dwell in the royal city with you? And Achish gave him Ziklag that day. Therefore Ziklag pertains to the kings of Judah unto this day. And the time of David dwelt in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. And David and his men went up and invaded the Geshurites and the Gezerites and the Amalekites. For those nations were of old of the inhabitants of the land as you go to Shur, even to the land of Egypt. And David smote the land, left neither man nor woman alive, and took away the sheep and the oxen and the donkeys and the camels and the, and the clothes and returned and came to Achish. And Achish said, where have you made a road this day? And David said, against the south of Judah, against the south of the Jeremielites, the Jeremielites, and against the south of the Kenites. And David, but da and David saved neither man or woman alive to bring tidings to Gath, saying, lest they should tell on us, saying, 
So did David, and so will be the manner. All the while he dwells in the country of the Philistines. And Achish believed David, saying, He made his people Israel utterly to abhor him. Therefore, he will be my servant forever. Let's pray together. Lord, what an incredible story this is. Incredible because we often put David on a pedestal. We think of him as always being above reproach with the exception of Bathsheba and numbering the people. But we, we see here, Lord, that David was a man just like we are. He was a human being with frailties and faults and failures. He made mistakes, the biggest of which was failing to consult you in everything he did. How we identify with that. I pray this morning, Lord, that you would help us, rather, to always bring before you our griefs. To tell them to Jesus. To to lay them at your feet. To cast all our care upon you because the promise in your word is that you care for us. Help us to be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let our requests be known to you because you, Lord, give a peace that surpasses understanding. It's impossible for us to understand it. And it sets up a military garrison around our hearts. And when we are anxious and when we are afraid and when we are in grief, even the deepest of grief, we can have that garrison of peace because we have cast upon you our burdens. That we have given them to you in prayer. Help us to see the importance of that today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A husband stands by the hospital bed of his beloved wife as she slips away from this world into the next. A wife opens an envelope from an attorney's office with divorce papers inside. A man watches his business fall apart completely, his entire financial future along with it. A child holds her favorite pet dog who died in her arms as her dad digs a hole in the yard where they plan to bury it. And these are just a few of the thousands of potential griefs that we face as humans. About 12 years ago or so, I was dropping my children off at their school. And uh, as I was getting out of the car, it was, it was not a school day, regular school day. I was getting out of the car. I, I looked up and I saw a familiar face, one I hadn't seen in, well, at the time, probably 18 years or so. It was Patty, a friend that I grew up with. We were in grade school together. I mean, I don't really remember meeting her because do you remember meeting people in kindergarten or first grade? I mean, we've just known each other that long. I remember uh, her sitting in front of me in, in one of the grade school classes, third grade, fourth grade, I don't remember which of those, but I remember she sat right in front of me 
in school. And then later, I remember conversations we had in high school. In fact, I asked her uh, a few months ago um, about some of those conversations. And she said, you know, I don't remember anything about high school. Uh, I've just blocked all of it out. Uh, I, uh, so I started recounting to her, you, you don't remember us having this conversation? And she's going, okay, I kind of remember some of that. <laughs> well, it was maybe a year ago, a year and a half ago, Patty was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And of course, as m most of the time, that's fatal. And in her case, it was. And I was thinking about the friends that I grew up with who are no longer here. Uh, I guess the older you get, the more common that is. Uh, people I graduated high school with who, who died in car accidents and died of cancer and other things. And for me, that's grief. For her family, that's real grief. Let me give you a little bit of counseling on the subject of grief. You may not be in grief now. In fact, you may be saying, you know, this whole series of sermons on grief just kind of were passing me by because I, I'm not in grief. My, my life's pretty good. Everything's going along fine. Well, okay, that may be true now, but if Jesus doesn't return, let me just tell you what life's about. You're going to face grief at some point. Grief is acute pain because of a loss of something dear or precious. It is deep distress, much greater than just mere disappointment. Or as Henry Wadsworth Longfellow wrote, into each life, some rain must fall, the days must be dark and dreary. Now we've examined the life of David at least twice now, one that reminded us that God is with us in our griefs, one that reminded us also that we should be helping others who are grieving, but now I want to turn our attention to a discussion about this question. What do I do? Not what is God doing? Not what should other people do? But what do I do when I'm going through grief? When I lose something or someone who is dear or precious? What do I do when I'm in deep distress? Naturally, one of the first questions people ask is why? Why me? Why did this happen to me? In 1969, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross published in a secular publication her view that people naturally go through five stages of grief. They go through denial and anger and depression, bargaining, and finally acceptance. This was uh, her looking at people and kind of watching how they handled grief just from a secular sense. Now people will say, well, scholars teach that this really isn't precise. Uh, you don't necessarily go through all five stages, and I don't think Christians do, but I do think the question of why, which is very common even for Christians who are going through a crisis or in grief, they'll ask why. That really is kind of somewhere between denial and anger. To just, to just say, why, God, did you let this happen to me? And I think naturally on its heels then comes a question that is somewhere between depression and bargaining, which is what do I do now? And I have sat with people who were in grief and I have heard them say, why me? And then I have heard them say and look at me and say, pastor, what do I do now? 
What am I supposed to do now? And I think that that, that question is really, you know, you know, where should I go? What, what comes next? Well, number one, prayer is the best first response to grief. Now, grief is something that threatens our peace. It's the result of something threatening our peace. If you go back to chapter 23, 1 Samuel 23 and verse 7, Saul is chasing David, and David had come to the city of Keilah, and Saul says, okay, God's delivered him to my hand. And if you go to chapter 27 and verse 1, you see kind of David's conclusion of the 10 years of running from Saul. David says, I'm not going to make it. There's no way out. One day I'll perish at the hand of Saul. David's life is actually threatened because of Saul's pursuit of him. I don't know about you. Very few of us have ever really had our lives threatened by someone else. Saul desired to murder David and to murder his family. And and I think that's a threat to peace. Don't, Don't you? I mean, my peace would be upended a little bit. I had a guy in high school tell me he was going to kill me. I don't remember exactly what I did to make him angry. I hope I'll never do it again. He was really mad. He told me he was going to kill me. Now, he didn't follow through on that. At least he hasn't yet. Listen, if something happens to me this week. (laughs) Guy had patience. Saul saw David's refuge in Keilah as an opportunity to capture him. And and in a weird, twisted way, Saul even considered this to be from the Lord, declaring that God had delivered David into his hand. How terrible that Saul sees the hand of God where it did not exist, at least not in the way Saul's seeing it. So it led the king in verse 8 of chapter 23 to call up his army to, to lay siege to Keilah. David recognizes his life is in jeopardy. You go again to chapter 27, he says in his heart, David is speaking to himself. This is meditation. In in his deepest thoughts, maybe it's at night because that's often when these thoughts come. He said in his heart, this is his true belief. He really believes he's not going to make it. Understand, God had Samuel anoint David king over Israel, but David now, he's been running for so long, he doesn't believe it anymore. And I'm just going to tell you something. When you're in grief, that's what happens. The whys and the what next lead you to wonder if God's promises are real. He doubted that he could continue running from Saul and survive. Fleeing from an adversary who intends to murder you is a textbook example of someone experiencing grief, and it's a complete breakdown of David's peace. So what does David do in 1 Samuel 23? This is letter B. The solution to grief is to cast your burdens on the Lord in prayer. It says in verse 8, David knew Saul secretly practiced mischief against him. It it was an open secret, right? Saul's trying to kill him. So he says to Abiathar, this priest, the priest of Nob that he had saved, this young man who's now with him, bring me the ephod. He's looking to actually consult the Yumim and the Thumim. And he's showing now here in prayer, beginning in verse 10, 
that he's dependent upon God. Dependence is demonstrated in David's address as he says to God, you are the God of Israel. You're the Jehovah Elohim. You, you are the ruler over Israel. Israel is supposed to be a theocracy. God is supposed to be her king. And, and David refers to Jehovah Elohim as his servant. He says, of God, I am your servant. I'm king over Israel, but I'm still servant to you. He knows that his future position is still at God's pleasure. God rules. He's sovereign that way. And as he comes to him in prayer, he's actually demonstrating dependence. This is what it says. Be anxious for nothing, but by everything. In prayer and in supplication. Supplication, the supplicant, the beggar who comes to God and says, I need help. This is what David is doing. Dependence is demonstrated in David's request. He's seeking God's wisdom about his situation. What is Saul going to do? What are the people of the town going to do? I need your wisdom, Lord. I need your help. He knows he cannot decide what to do without God's help. Here's a man who is utterly dependent upon God. Friends, that's how we ought to be every day of our lives. And you, do you know when it becomes obvious that we're not that way? When we get into these kinds of situations. And our first response isn't prayer. God's answer to prayer provides the answer to the problem. David recognizes he can no longer remain in Keilah. I can't stay here. Saul's coming down. He's going to bring an army. The people are going to give me up to him. That's God's answer to him. So David has to move again in the whole retinue of people. Leave the city for the wilderness. I, can, I think of all the vendors in Keilah going, no, don't go. We had Our business was booming. Now it's just back to the regulars. But all 600 men, they get up, they have to run. And in, and in total, David is on the run. Think about this. A whole decade of his life. It's like prison. He's running from Saul. He's living in caves. He's living in forests. Because he's just on the run. He's trying not to get captured because then he'll be killed. But David, in his dependence upon God, he's divinely protected by God. Saul looked for David every day, the text says. He continued in his pursuit for David as if being led by Satan himself. Remember, he was demon-possessed. And, and you look at the last part of verse 14, it says, but God. And my friends, those who are dependent upon God find but God is the answer to their problems. Human ingenuity, human answers don't solve the problem. God does. And when you come to God in prayer, when you're being chased by someone daily, chased by sin, chased by trials, chased by struggles, chased by loss. When you find yourself in that kind of condition, it's but God that's the answer to your problem. God protected David and his men. Saul believed God was working for him, but actually Saul doesn't realize God is working against him. And when you come to grief, my friends, you will you 
as you're naturally asking the questions of why and what now, will you come to prayer? All of these things should bring you back or renew your commitment to total dependence upon God for you to say in that moment of grief, God, I can't do this. I I just can't handle this situation anymore. I am at the end. And, And we have all sorts of metaphors, right? I'm at the end of my rope. I'm at the end of my candle is burned down to the wick. My pencil got sharpened all the way to the eraser, whatever example you want to give, right? There's nothing left. How terrible that in the middle of all of that burning and rope giving, is that what you do? Rope pulling? Whatever it is, however you get to the end of your rope, right? How terrible that in the middle of that, I didn't somehow stop and go, Lord, I need your help. I need your wisdom. I need your grace. Friends, God rules over your life. He rules. He knows whether you're going to get sick next year. He knows whether you're going to have a major car accident next month. He knows the unexpected bill that's coming five years from now. He knows all of this. God knows how you're going to spend your last day on earth. He knows the last words that are going to come out of your mouth. God knows all of that. In fact, he knows the last words that are going to come out of your grandchildren's mouth. God knows. He rules over you. And the problems are never outside his control. Who better to rule you than God? He is Jehovah, right? That's what David says. You're Jehovah. You're the all-existing one. All the gods of all the people who live around me, they're just wood and stone and metal. They're nothing. You're the one who created all things. You are Elohim, the creator. You're the one who in the beginning created the heavens and the earth. And no one is in better position to help you in a time of grief than God is. Yes, your grief hurts. And it stings even intensely. But God still holds you close to him. And he carries you in his arms like a shepherd carries a wounded sheep. My friends, his rule over you is ever influenced by his love. So you suffer now, but not alone. You suffer now, but not forever. You suffer now, but not unloved. You suffer now, but now is soon past. And suffering returns to peace again. He rules over you. Go to him in prayer. His wisdom is the only wisdom worth having. I mean, everybody when you're in trouble is prone to give you advice. They may be well-meaning. Maybe not. It'll be like Job's friends trying to give you the best advice they can conjure up. They may be even influential people. If you're older, maybe it's an adult child trying to get mom, dad, listen, here's what you got to do. It might be a parent, and you're an adult child, and the parent's now telling you, well, back in my day, you know, it may be that. Okay? It may be a sibling, brother, sister. You know, I've been with you. I've seen all your life. Here's what you need to do. It may even be a pastor or a deacon or a church member trying to give you counsel. And, and it may not even be bad counsel. But friends, God's wisdom is really the only wisdom worth having. And how awful it is 
The more education you have, your education kicks in, what you know. Or the more experience you have, you, you start saying, I know what to do because I've, I've been through this already before. Or I know what to do. I've read about this in a book. Or I know what to do. I, I've been taught how to handle this crisis. But the only person who really knows what's going on in your life and in your heart at the same time, the only person who sees the overlap of those two things is God, and He can say, this is the way out. Here's how you get out of this and back to peace. And so you must pray. You have to cry out to God for help. Ask God for His mercies. Plead with Him for His intervention. Seek His Wisdom. Now, if prayer is the first best response to grief, then what happens when we don't pray? Let's go over to chapter 27. This is point number two. Prayerlessness in times of grief introduces new problems. See, grief influences decisions, doesn't it? I mean, those of you who've been through some pretty heavy grief, doesn't it kind of influence your decisions? It, it kind of controls a little bit of the way you think. David said in his heart, in verse 1, I'll perish one day by the hand of Saul. I mean, it's coming. There's nothing I can do about it. It's better for me that I should run to the Philistines. I'm going to go to my enemies. <clears throat> Maybe then Saul will despair of me and seek me no more in the coast of Israel. And I'll escape out of his hand. So David arose and passed over with the 600 men to Achish. <clears throat> you know what grief does? It makes you think you have no other options. In the moment when you can't think because you're feeling. And, he, and even if you're the most intelligent of people, you'll feel in the moment of grief. You're feeling. It's hurting. And so you're having trouble thinking clearly. And, and what happens is you feel like you're boxed in. I've got no other options. So just like David, you say, what's better for me? Th this is obviously the best plan. This is the path. David says, I'll escape to the Philistines, my enemies. It, by the way, this is something David had done before. If, if you want to read or later, go back to chapter 20, run, 21 and read how David went to the Philistines and was with Achish at one time earlier. His, his intent, he thinks, is the right one. I need to get Saul to stop chasing me. But do you see what he's doing here? He's a man who's thinking in his moment of grief, what's best for me, not what does God want me to do right now? I mean, when things are pretty good, right? It's pretty easy to think, okay, Lord, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do right now? When things get hard, you think, how do I get out from under this weight, this burden? I got to get out from under. I'm feeling crushed. Do, do you know what pastors do? I'll let you in a little pastoral secret. Do you know what pastors do? When things get hard in their church, they tend to leave. Did you know the average pastor stays at a church about three years? That's, that's about the average now. If you're a, an assistant pastor, it's about a year and a half. You stay for three years. Do you know what those three years are? Let me tell you, let me tell you how it works in pastor world. The first year in a new church is the honeymoon year. Everything's great. You can do no wrong. 
new people are coming and, and they come through the door and all the people who've been there before are saying, boy, if you'd only been here 10 years ago, that old pastor was terrible, but you are so great. Every sermon you preach is, is easily to, easy to understand, and I love it, and every decision you make is so good, and you're really the best thing that ever happened to that church. That's year one. And if every year could be year one, pastors would never leave a church, right? I mean, who doesn't want to hear that? Then year two happens. In year two, it's more a little down to earth. People are getting to know you a little better. They get to know what's going on in your heart. They, they've heard you say things you shouldn't say. They've heard, seen you do things you shouldn't do. And the shine comes off a little bit. And uh, the little old lady is not sitting at the back of the church building going, Pastor, that was the best message. Thank you so much. That kind of stops happening every Sunday. And then year three, the dreaded year three. That's when people finally know you completely. They've, they've met your kids up front, close and personal. <laughs> they, they've met your wife. Uh, they, they know you. You know them. And, and as much as there are parts of you they don't like, there are parts of them you don't like, and reality hits. And we all find out we're all people, right? And now it's real life. And what happens a lot of times... Most of the time in America, the pastor says, I don't like this. I don't want this. I remember two years ago, I could do no wrong. Things were so great. I mean, people would come to my house and buy me a new refrigerator. <clears throat> and I'm not making that up. I knew a pastor. They bought him a refrigerator. Year one of his ministry. He posted it on Facebook a few months ago. I'm going, man, you're year one. Of course they bought you a fridge. Guess what you get in year three? You know, the moving truck shows up at your door. <laughs> Hint. I mean, it's different. And they leave. Because they start doing what's in their own interest. See, David, do you, do you realize what's not in chapter 27? There's no mention of God. Nowhere is David praying. He's just ruminating on his own situation, weighing the pros and the cons. He's got his piece of paper out. Pros, underline. Cons, underline. Over here, he's got all the things over there. We've all done that. You know, over there, pros and cons. Trying to weigh. Okay, do I go? Do I stay? Just like the businessman in James 4. I think I'll go into such a city and buy and sell and get gain. This makes sense, business-wise. But David has the wrong list in his hand, folks. It ought to be his prayer list, not the pros and cons list. I don't seek the wisdom of God by looking at pros and cons. I seek the wisdom of God by saying, God, who, you who know everything, you who are the one who sees all, would you, as you have promised, give me your wisdom? That's how you make a choice. And he takes the path that he believes will bring him relief. And he doesn't have any idea of all the unintended consequences of his choices. Do you realize, friends, this is what happens 
when you take a decision outside of the will of God. David is living outside of God's plan for him. When you don't consult God, what it does is it encourages you to make a decision outside of God's wisdom. There's always another option. When you're in trial, when you're being tested, doesn't God make a way of escape so that you're able to bear it? Isn't that the promise we have in 1 Corinthians chapter 10? David's grief from his struggle influenced his decision to move apart from God's wisdom, which, my friends, is always a mistake because he doesn't pray about it. He has no guidance from the Lord. In fact, it's very interesting. If you want to see this, look over at 20, chapter 23 and verse 13. And if you're using a modern translation, it may not read it quite this way, but I promise you in, in Hebrew it does. In verse 13, it says, David arose. David and his men, which were about 600, arose. You see that? David arose. David moved. Now go over to chapter 27 and look at verse 2. And what does it say there? David arose. So the same action. In the first case, David is taking action that God has told him to take. Here's what you should do after consulting God's for wisdom. But in the second case, David does the same action without consulting God. He should be thinking, if the Lord wills, if this is God's plan for me, this is what I'll do. You know, you who are about to go to college or you're in college or you'll be out of college, you're out of college just barely. You're just starting life. You've got all these things ahead of you. You've got, you've got houses to buy and children to bear and uh, just the ladies, but um, um, uh, 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 ch children to pay for. That's the men, right? But, or and the ladies too, actually. Um, the ladies do it all. Um, I'm going to dig myself in trouble if I keep going down this path, so I'm going to stop. You've got all this ahead of you. And if you just do what seems right to you, if you buy a house or you buy a car or you start a career or you get into a marriage or, or you make all these decisions that seem, just seem right to you without consulting God, you're in real danger. My dad often signs his letters, DV. Well... His name is Dayton, but his middle name's not Victor, okay? D.B. Deo volente. It's Latin, the Lord wills. If God wills. The James 4, right, right. I'm going to go in a city, I'm going to buy and sell a game. That, that's just a businessman's decision. He's just looking at the markets. He's just gauging the business. Does, does this make sense? If I do this, I can sell these wares, I can get this money, I can use this. It's, it's business decision. And James writes, you should have asked, if the Lord wills, I will go into a city and buy and sell cocaine. Because you don't know, but your life is a vapor. And I think James is actually looking back at a lesson that Jesus taught about a parable of a man who, when, when he was being prosperous, he said, I'll tear down my barns and build bigger. And, and I've heard preachers preach on that parable and say, this guy is, is, is a fool. He is a fool because God calls him a fool, but not because of his business decision. He needed more barns. What was fool is that he didn't consider God. 
at all. You don't know your life's a vapor. Thou fool, tonight your soul will be required of you. And then who will those things be? My friends, the we have to go and say, this conflict that David is facing is, is not about life. If David dies, if God, if God lets Saul capture David and David dies, is that what God wants? Is that what God wants? Yes. If, I, if I'm out driving on some of these roads that are just getting crazier as we get more cars, I'm, I watch people run red lights now almost daily. I mean, run the red light. Not, you know, they speed up and there's still four cars back when it turns red. And then one, two, three, just, okay. Well, if God has it so that you get hit by a car, that's his will. If God has it that you come down with a horrible illness, that's his will. I'm sure that a few years ago, my friend Patty wasn't thinking, oh, my children are getting to an age, they're starting to marry, and, and soon they'll, I'll have grandkids. She, was, she wasn't thinking in her mind, maybe God's going to end my life and call me to be with him. I, I don't think she was thinking that way. In fact, in her last email to me, she said, it looks like, she said, I haven't told anybody this. She said, but I wanted you to know because you asked. It looks like this is going to get me. But she said, this is God's will. Now, I'm looking at that and I'm saying, that's a person now who has drunk deeply from the well of this scripture. Because the conflict isn't about life. David's all about preserving his life. He's not thinking how God is thinking at all. Because what does God think? How does God think? God is always about glorifying himself because he's God. He can't glorify anything better. It sounds selfish, but in reality it makes sense because there's nothing greater than God to glory in. So he has to glory in himself. And so a believer who's really thinking this way, here's what he says. If I live, I live to God. If I die, I die to God. Or as Paul wrote, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I mean, if somebody steps into your car, puts a gun to your head and says, drive, let me tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to get on the highway and see how, I'm going to open that thing up. I'm going to see how fast I can go. And I'm going to look at that guy and say, let me tell you something. In a second, I'm going to steer this car into the nearest big oak tree. And both of us are going to be in eternity. I'm going to heaven. Where are you headed? What a witnessing opportunity. I mean, that's awesome. And if you shoot me, we're certainly going into that oak tree. Good luck. Now, let me tell you about Jesus. For me to live is Christ. To die is gain. It's gain. And David has stopped thinking that way. And his prayerlessness results in serious consequences. This is letter B. He gets what he wants, verse 3. He goes down to Gath. Who was from Gath? Do you remember? Big giant dude. Goliath of. Achish is king over Gath for 40 some years, scholars believe. He's probably king over Gath when David kills Goliath. In all likelihood, David or uh, Achish knew Goliath well, the Goliath, the chief of his arm, army. He knew the Goliath well. He sent him out to Israel. David's the one who killed him. David has his sword. 
This may be the sword that Achish gave to him. And he arrives in Gath with his family intact. And yeah, he gets what he wants. Saul stopped chasing him. Verse 4, it was told Saul, David fled to Gath and he sought no more for him again. <laughs> Saul's scared to death of Gath. He wants nothing to do with those people. Fine, he goes down there, he can live down there. He gets what he wants. And I'm going to tell you, this is one of the worst realities of people who live outside of God's plan. Often they do get what they want and they look at everybody else and say, see, I got what I want. But how terrible, because David reaps a bitter harvest to get there. You see, that little part where he talks about the people and the places, David invaded the Geshurites and the Gezrites and the Amalekites. But then when he talks to Achish, he says, I was with the Jeremelites and the Kenites and the south of Judah, the Negev of Judah. Verse 11 says, how, did, how could David lie like that and get away with it? Because he's lying right to Achish's face. He's playing a double life with Achish, right? Achish thinks David is out raiding Israel, that he's actually taking out parts of Israel. He's furthering the Philistines' cause. Full time, actually, David is raiding the enemies of Judah, the place where he's going to be the king. And he's getting away with it. How is he getting away with it? Well, he commits genocide against the enemies of Israel. There are places in the Old Testament where God said, kill everyone and everything, but it's not universal. And what David's doing here, my friends, is murder. And, there, and the writer tells us why. Verse 11, David saved neither man nor woman alive to bring tidings to Gath. Notice he doesn't kill the infants, men and women. Why? Lest they should tell on us. We, have, we can't let anybody talk. Everybody goes. These are little villages of people. And David has his 600 warriors and he rides into town and they just kill everybody, all the adults. They save no one alive. So no one can go run back to Saul and tell what David is doing. And he's playing this double life with Achish. He's, he's living lies. He's living a lie. Hoping not to get caught. Hoping that he got everybody in every town. And he's committing genocide against the enemies of Israel, not fighting against the armies of these enemies. He's fighting the people. He's killing the citizens. This, this is why I believe later on that when he wants to build the temple, God says, no, you're a man of violence. You're a man of blood. It's not just because David was head of the armies. No, no, no. Da David is not a good guy all the time. Because our entire picture of David is sometimes controlled by the way we were taught in Sunday school and we're only taught the high marks. You know, David got the whole sling, got the cheese, and his brothers, and Goliath, and then the armor, and then you, then the next story, you know, you talk about David playing the harp, and he just looks like such a great guy. And there's a lot of David that's good. He is the man after God's own heart. But he's still a man, and he does a lot of really horrible things. Do you see the problems that David's prayerlessness caused him? Yes, he got what he wanted, but it cost him his integrity and it cost him his morality. What a steep price to pay. It's kind of weird to think about this, but lying and murder. Where, where do you hear those two things together in Scripture? That's Satan. He's a liar from the beginning and he abode not in the truth and he's a murderer. 
And I, I really think here, David, because he hasn't consulted God, is being led astray by the devil. And I think this is why David can't build the temple. In 1 Chronicles 22.8, he was a man of violence. My friends, when you come to grief, you can rely on yourself, your experience, your education, even other people, or, or you can turn to God in prayer. You don't have to be the smartest person. You don't have to be the wisest of sages. You don't have to have all the experience in the world. You can be a teenager just kind of starting out your Christian life, and you can still go to the Lord in prayer. You can be in grade school, and you can go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, I need your wisdom. You can be in college and say, God, I don't know what you want for me in my life. Give me wisdom. Help me to know all the way to the last days of your life, on the last morning of your life. Lord, you may not know it, but Lord, what do you want me to do today? And I'll do it, whatever it is. What did Jesus do throughout his earthly ministry? He prayed. In times of conflict and struggle, he prayed. On the cross, he prayed. So is prayer a priority in your life? I'm just asking straight out. You need to answer this question. Is prayer a priority? Is it? I'm not asking if you have the best prayer life because if we all were honest about that, we would have to say no, right? I think that's true. I'm not asking that. I'm asking is a priority. And if your answer is no, then this is a problem. Is your practice to turn to God when facing grief? Do you trust him to guide you? Or are you trusting your own ingenuity and knowledge? Or even the ingenuity and knowledge of others? I've told you this before. When, when Melanie was a little girl, we would sometimes go to the mall and I'd play this little game with her. I would, I would walk around a rack of clothes and I would go, Melanie... And she would run around. I mean, she was tiny. You know, she'd run around, waddle. Hey, I see you. And then I would disappear. I'd run around the other side, and she'd come running around. And we would do this about three or four times until, like, have Pavlovian responses. She would do the same action. And she, she just didn't have the mental acuity at the time. She, she couldn't figure out what I would do next because I would go around, and then I would come back. But I'm tall enough to see over the rack of clothes, and she's not. So she's, she's standing there, and she'd run around, and I wouldn't be there. And then I'd watch her. You'd just see in her little brain go, oh, oh, he must still be over there. So she'd run over there, and I would have moved back. This is kind of cruel, isn't it? <laughs> and then she would go, ah, oh, and she'd run back around, and I'd move back around. And we did this a couple of times in Belk, and then she went, ah! It was the last time we played that game. <laughs> and that's the cry for dad. And when you're in grief, that's the cry for dad. I need your help. I need your wisdom. I need you to guide me. Let's pray. Lord, this is what we need. In times of struggle, in times of pain, in seasons of loss, help us to cry out to you. Before I finish praying, I want you to, right now in your heart, is prayer a priority? Is it the priority of your life? 
or are you just kind of willing to wing it? If you're here, you say, Pastor, God is speaking to my heart about this. I'd like to pray for you. Anybody? Just rip up your hand, Pastor, pray for me. Yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Anybody else? Yes, sir. Yes. Yes, ma'am. I need to make prayer a priority when I'm facing these questions. It needs to be so second nature in my life that I'm coming back to him again and again. Anybody else? Pastor, pray for me. Lord, you see where we are. You know my heart. This is where I am at. It just needs to be the priority. It often is not. I admit that. Lord, it needs to be. We have prayer meeting tonight, Lord. This needs to be the priority of my day. I need to think about it that way. I have prayer times during the week. I need to meet those times of prayer. We have a prayer night coming up. I need to be there and think and pray because it needs to be my priority. Lord, help me to think that way. Not just to do it because I have to, because I'm the leader, but because I want to. Help us all to do it because we want to. To always be coming back to you first. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand to our feet. The pianist will play an invitation song, and you just go to the Lord right now and seal this in your heart, and she's playing.